Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the day and thank you, yes, for the the glorious rain, Lord. We know we always need it and so we give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity this morning to come together as a church body, a church family and to exalt your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, We thank you, Father, for the fellowship that we've enjoyed We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth through song. Lord, now we come to this time where we want to learn and grow in the knowledge of Christ through your word. And so, Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand clearly and uh, have hearts and minds that desire to take in your word and but not just to let it kind of sit there in us, but Lord, to take root and to, Lord, be lived out in authentic lives, Christian lives that long to put you and your son on display out there to to a difficult, even unbelieving world. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So every year growing up, every Every summer, my family and I would would take a family vacation, and it was anywhere from one to two weeks. It was something that I looked forward to tremendously. Um, We often uh, drove up through the state. Uh, We were up in the the Bay Area, and we'd go up through Oregon into Washington often. We had relatives there. Sometimes we'd make uh, trips out east. Um, But it was always a a time that, again, I, I greatly looked forward to, and and we would start talking about it, you know, as school let out and summer began and we would kind of hear from our parents where we were going to go and what we would see, who we would visit, that sort of thing. And so the excitement kind of keeps growing. But then it might be August until we were going on vacation. So you still had a couple of months and you kind of, you know, forget about it after a while. And, and then finally, about a week before, my dad would start getting the camper ready. And that's when, boy, I really started to get excited because you'd go into the camper and kind of check it out and get your sleeping bags and put those in. And, and of course, for me, the, 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 the coup de grace was when I saw our fishing rods come out and get loaded into the camper. And, of course, the camper sat on this pea green Dodge, like family truckster, you know. It was right out of the movies where where they went to pick it up the first time, and it was wrong, but my dad's like, no, we're going on our family vacation, so we'll just take it, you know. And, and, uh, and so then, you know, the preparations are happening, and mom's gathering up clothes and filling it into the camper, and, and uh, we're doing all these, these things to get it ready to go, and the, again, the sleeping bags and the cookware, etc etc finally the day came when we wake up in the morning and we'd load up and we drive and uh, of course I think it was probably about an hour and a half outside the Bay Area we'd get to this one rest stop and we would stop at this one rest stop every year and had all these eucalyptus trees I remember it so well and it felt like we were so far away and like oh man we're 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 on the road when of course, you know, again, it was an hour and a half and it was, you know, still uh, days to get to our destination. I, I tell you this story because to me, that was kind of like the forerunner that, 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 you know, getting ready and all the preparations, then finally loading up and getting things going. It wasn't the destination. That rest stop wasn't the destination as as awesome as I thought it was. But you knew that things were moving 
in the right direction. Things were starting to get exciting. And you knew it was simply a matter of time until you reached your destination and, you know, all the fun that would would, uh, come with that. And and this is what we are going to see from our, our text this morning. We are going to leave that 500 years, uh, 400 years, excuse me, of God's silence with Israel and witness some of the planning and some of the preparations as we are introduced to a forerunner. So last week, just to give you the brief recap, we talked about some of the Old Testament promises surrounding Messiah, the God-anointed one who would be sent to the Jews first, offer salvation to the nation. And of course, the average Jew in the nation of Israel understood this less in a a spiritual sense and more in a political or even military type way as, as someone who would lead their nation to a forever freedom. But what God had in mind was actually both. There would be eventual freedom and oppression from in that political and geographic sense. But first, there would be spiritual freedom that the Messiah would bring through the forgiveness of sins. And these promises that we looked back, go all the way back to, that we looked at, go back to Genesis 3, the fall of mankind due to man's disobedience. And this demonstrated, of course, man's need for a Savior of which God promised to provide someone who would ultimately crush sin, death, Satan, And we saw these promises play out through people like Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and and of course many others. And some some 2,000 years worth of promises, more if you even go back to Genesis 3. And then after the minor prophets, we learn that God, God went silent. For again, some 400 years is a judgment against Israel and their sins as a nation, mostly of idolatry. There were no more prophecies, no more promises, just 400 years of sin and struggling. And I think it would be easy to imagine how people might have thought even that God had forgotten them. Or that he wanted nothing more to do with them or even abandon them. But then something happened. And the people saw some some movement. Some preparations were underway. And God was ready to speak again to his people. And not just speak, but as Galatians 4.4 says, excuse me, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son but in preparation of that god first dispatched a messenger to bring some news some amazing news and and to me what's interesting about this and this messenger is that god didn't send this messenger to caesar augustus he didn't send this messenger to herod the great he didn't send this messenger to the high priest but actually He sent this messenger to a much lesser known priest by the name of Zacharias. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. 
Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Why don't we go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. In Luke 1 and verse 5, Luke writes, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. And fear gripped him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's look at some characteristics for a few minutes of this forerunner. One of the ones that we see in there in verse 15 is that he will be great. This forerunner to the Messiah will be great. And, And notice something about his greatness. He will be great not in the sight of people, not in the sight of the world, but in God's sight. In God's eyes, he will be great. And I think we get this mixed up sometimes. Because we tend to want greatness and to seek the, uh, the approval of men rather than God. And, and friends, I'm not talking about, say, the rich and powerful. I'm not talking about the, the movers and shakers of the world or the celebrities or the sports stars. I'm talking about you and I. Jesus will say of John in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women... In other words, he's referring to the human, not a divine being. Those who are born of women, there is no one greater than John. And also take note of what this greatness produces. Joy and gladness. And not just for his parents, but for many who will rejoice at his birth. In other words, prophecy fulfilled, friends. More confirmation that the Messiah is indeed on his way. Secondly, we see that he will abstain from strong drink in verse 15. He will drink no wine or liquor. This is keeping with the vows of a Nazarite. And as well, it would keep John above reproach in the most serious of ways. Because John will never be in a position where he could be accused of drunkenness or dissipation. 
nor will his judgment ever be impaired or hindered. There will be a purity within John, a clearness of mind, a soundness of thought. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Is our next one. Filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And you have to know that this was un- unusual. Because back before Pentecost, including the Old Testament, God more or less used his Holy Spirit uh, to come upon someone for a specific task. Every person of true believing faith didn't uh, earlier on have the Holy Spirit indwelling them in the permanent way that that we do this side of the day of Pentecost. That wouldn't happen until after that time. And Jesus' promise to believers that he would send his Holy Spirit as their helper. And then we find out in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit does abide in every true Christian to live and dwell in us, acting as our helper and acting as our guide and our illuminator of Scripture, our teacher, our encourager, our gift giver, even pleasure of eternal life, our sanctifier. But John had this special filling, and he had it while still in his mother's womb. God wanted John to be sanctified, set apart in a very distinct way for holy use, in a unique way. Fourth, he will turn people back to God. We see this in verse 16. And he will turn or, or convert is the word there. Many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And that is to say, John will bring about repentance for many Jews in preparation of Jesus' coming. You say, well, why does this need to happen prior to the Messiah? Isn't that what the coming of the Messiah was, was all about? Isn't that what Jesus is going to do? Well, Because much of Israel had basically gone apostate at this point. They had been steeped in their sin and rebellion for so long. They have turned aside to worship false gods. And even with such wicked practices as as child sacrifice, they have allowed themselves to be influenced and even jumped headfirst into pagan societies that surrounded them they have committed just such great iniquity and yet god is now ready to to draw some of them back to himself which takes us to the next characteristic that that he will be ready and prepare people for the lord this this forerunner in verse 17 so as to make ready a people prepared for the lord so uh, you might imagine, and especially if you are a uh, mom or a dad, if your mom or dad left for the weekend and they left their teenage kids in charge of things with clear instructions as to what was expected of them to, to keep things in order, to take care of themselves while the parents are away, and yet as so often is the case, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And the kids are no exception in this, this uh, scenario. No sooner had the parents left when it became party central at the house, right? 
And it just becomes a, a shambles. And they kind of then, wow, hey, we can just take the party to our friend's house. And, and they just completely shirk their duties and their responsibilities. They, they, they don't even bathe, you know, or take care of themselves while the parents are gone. They're indulging in their loss and they're forgetting and forsaking everything that the parents had, had instructed them about. So think about it. Will they be ready to receive their parents when the parents return? No. In fact, they're not even around the house. They basically checked out. But imagine, imagine if the parents were gracious enough to, um, to have a close family friend uh, go around and find the kids, round them up prior to the parents' return, rebuke them, tell them to get their act together, and to get things in order because their parents are about to return. And, and who knows, you know? Parents might even bring you a gift. In this case, they would be in a much better state to receive their folks, don't you think? And so, so in a sense, this will be the ministry of John the Baptist to call the people of Israel back to God, to call them to repentance, to call them to clean up their houses, get those houses in shape, get them ready, because the parents are coming home. The Messiah, the chosen An anointed one is coming, and God wants you ready. He wants his people ready to receive their king, which frankly, they cannot do if they're entrenched in their sin and their transgression and their iniquity. And we see see how this is to happen, that that John is to be a forerunner. So, okay, what's a a forerunner? Someone who comes before, Someone who, who makes a way, makes the way ready for the person that they are a forerunner to. You know, in a sense, John's the warm-up act, right? Or maybe consider John like, uh, like the advance team. President of the United States shows up to, to visit a city or make a speech. They, they send out their advance team to kind of, you know, get things ready, set things up. Uh, sometimes you'll even have other speakers that'll show up to kind of warm up the crowd, you know, in anticipation of the president. And, and, and they deliver messages that kind of pave the way for the president and what he will say and do. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, The prophet writes, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. This is God, of course, speaking through the prophet. I am going to send my messenger. There's that forerunner. And he will clear the way before me. And we also find out that John is to come as a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, we know from the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5, that God says that he is going to send Elijah the prophet. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11, verse 14, has Jesus himself saying, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah to come, who was to come, excuse me. And Jesus also in Mark 9, 13 says, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Again, referring to John the Baptist. And and yet John himself testified that he was not literally Elijah. John 1, 21. So, we can understand the prophecy of Malachi, and, and the angel in our text is not referring to a literal bodily return of Elijah as the forerunner, but 
as the angel says, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Elijah, friends, he was a spiritual heavy. I mean, he was so much so that Elisha, right, his contemporary, when asked by his mentor Elijah what he might like him to do for him before God would take him up, and we know that he was taken up in that chariot of fire, he replied, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. That was Elisha's request of Elijah. John was to be a spiritual heavy in the same way that Elijah was. His job being to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So how about this phrase to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous? It's quoting Malachi 6. We just met, read Malachi 4, 5 about the forerunner is Elijah. And then in, in verse 6 it says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now there's all kinds of ways that one might understand this quotation, but simply because of time this morning, I'm just going to cut to the chase and tell you that it is speaking of people who are prepared for their God as those who have lived in peace and righteousness with one another. In other words, John comes to call a sinful people to repentance, the disobedient to an attitude of righteousness, not just with God, but with one another, and therefore ready and waiting for the coming of the Messiah, indeed the Lord himself, God in human flesh. Now, let's jump back to Zacharias and Elizabeth's story. The angel Gabriel has just told all of this to Zacharias there in the temple. And as you might remember, Zacharias questions the angel. And he does so in a truly unbelieving way about the birth of this child. Because if you remember, he and Elizabeth were far past the childbearing years. And Gabriel responds to this unbelief with what? He strikes him mute. Mute. Well, then Zacharias does come out of the temple. Uh, Surprise, surprise. He's unable to speak. But through sign language, he's able to tell everyone about seeing this angelic vision there. And he and Elizabeth then return home. And Elizabeth, surprise, surprise again, does become pregnant. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. And and just, just consider, friends, all that God has sovereignly, supernaturally done to start putting this plan of sending Jesus in motion. Just like Gabriel said to Zacharias about how his prophetic words would be filled in their proper time, God has his proper time for bringing a Messiah into the world, starting with this forerunner to be birthed by a couple who were again just beyond that normal childbearing age. And yet this was intentional. It was intentional on God's part. As God knew the impact that this would have on the people. 
When you figure again after 400 plus years of silence, if this miracle birth and the use of an angelic messenger would convince people of God's hand in this, then weren't they more apt to believe the truth that the long-awaited Messiah was indeed about to happen? He was about to come. He's almost there. And now speaking of this Messiah... Let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 67. So we're just going to jump over to verse 67. Returning to our story, but kind of having fast-forwarded through Elizabeth's pregnancy, which includes a visit by pregnant Mary. We'll get to that next week. Elizabeth has the baby, and when it came time to circumcise him eight days later, she made the announcement by instruction from the angel Gabriel that his name would be... John, not Zacharias, as many of uh, their friends and family figured that they would name him. And Zacharias affirmed that his name should be John in writing. And what happened? Pong, poof, he can now speak, right? And oh boy, does Zacharias have a lot to say. He is ready to go. And in fact, he, he gives this, this, just this tremendous uh, prophecy as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is where now we see some promises of the Messiah. Promises of the Messiah. And and the first promise is this, that he is the Redeemer. We'll look back at verse 67. It says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, redeem, you've heard that word before, to ransom, to buy back. How was this done? How were we bought back through the precious blood of God's own Son? In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Or as Paul would say to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And furthermore, this promise was not given in some kind of hopeful future kind of sense, but as something that has already happened. It's, it's, it's a done deal. He says he has visited us and accomplished, past tense, redemption for his people. In other words, friends, the outcome is secure. The outcome is certain. He is the Redeemer. Secondly, he's the horn of salvation. Look at verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Horns back then symbolized power and authority. Tyndale Bible Dictionary reports that horns in Scripture figuratively symbolize dominance over the weak, forces of destruction, and deliverance from oppression. End quote. Thus the thorn, the horn has two connotations, rescue and force, power. David says of God in Psalm 18 and verse 2, My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, Christ, friends, is our mighty, powerful, glorious 
Savior. Thirdly, is from the house of David. We see this in verse 69. In the house of David, his servant, thus fulfilling the promises made to David that we looked at last week when we were in 2 Samuel in chapter 7. When the promises came, when your days are complete, God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Forever. And again, prophecy fulfilled. Fourthly, he's the rescuer. The rescuer. We see this in verses 70 to 71 and and verse 74. Back in verse 70, it says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, and then he quotes Psalm 106 and verse 10. Verse 71, salvation. In other words, deliverance from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, he says to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies. Now, just just pause here for a moment, because this is why many of the Jews of Jesus's day just completely missed seeing Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, if this was the, the guy, they were thinking, why wasn't he? Mounting up some, some, some great military campaign to, to end Roman occupation and give deliverance to the people. And here's the thing. Sometimes we're, we're expecting one thing, but we get another. And at first we're disappointed with what we got. And we don't see that what we were given actually is infinitely better than what we thought we wanted. I remember as an actor... Oh, I wanted it all. <laughs> you know, I wanted the fame and the fortune and the great career and had my Academy Award speech, you know, written and ready whenever the, uh, the moment would come. And, and uh, you know, and there were some times throughout my career where I thought, oh, this is good. You know, this, this, this man, things are moving. Things are shaking. This is, this is on its way. It's going to happen only for that success that I, that I crave to elude me. The success that I I thought that I was always to have and what I wasn't realizing and understanding is that God had a very different kind of success in mind. That indeed he would call me into the ministry and actually fulfilling my, my heart's desire in an even greater way than could have happened with the other. And while there will eventually come a time when believing Jews will be 100% free from their enemies and all those who have hated them, and by the way, this will be true for all of us, there will first come a time when we are rescued from our greatest enemies, the enemy of sin, the enemy of death, the enemy of Satan. And the reason for this rescuing then is found in verses 74 to 75. He says to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies, here it is, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Spiritually speaking, friends, this is true right now. As the psalmist says in Psalm 118 and verse 6, the Lord is for me. I will not fear 
What can man do to me? And what? What's the worst that could happen? Kill us? We die? Yes. A few years back, there was a Christian village in Africa that was taken over by Muslim extremists who beheaded several Christians and even burned alive another. But thankfully, friends, there will come a time in God's future kingdom when God will have destroyed all of our enemies and we will live with zero fear, only peace forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, as for serving God in holiness and righteousness, this can only happen by means of the Messiah. As is affirmed by Paul in Ephesians 4, 22-24, when in, in reference to a new believer's life in Christ, we are told to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. To try and serve God apart from Christ would be 100% futile and would amount to really offering Him nothing. Nothing but dirty, soiled rags. Number four, He is the merciful, or letter E. (laughs) He's the merciful. Verse 20, uh, excuse me, 72 says, To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. And then if we skip down to verse 78, it says, Because the tender mercy of our God, the tender mercy of our God, the Messiah will show mercy to those prophets who went before by fulfilling his holy covenant which he gave to Abraham and furthermore we understand the the tender mercy of our God in granting us salvation by the forgiveness of our sins i like the uh, the story of a mother who once approached napoleon Seeking a pardon for her son, the emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. I'm still working on my French accent, okay? We'll get that one <laughs> next time. we got to think of this I need to work with Catherine a little bit more on that. <laughs> Friends, we don't deserve our salvation. None of it. We don't. We don't deserve the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But the tender mercy... Of our God. Zacharias then slips in another truth about the role of his son, the role that his son will play in, in verse 76. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You know, it doesn't, doesn't get much higher than that, right? Prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his, meaning Messiah's people, the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And this is John calling people to repentance in anticipation of Messiah's arrival, which which he faithfully does some 30 years or so later. We read, now in those days of John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And in this too, we see another role of Messiah. This would be our letter F. He is the Savior. Salvation by the forgiveness of sins in verse 77. And, and again, I, I, I believe that many Old Testament Jews missed the boat here because they weren't even thinking that they were sinners who needed forgiveness for their salvation. And you might remember how some of the Jewish leaders reacted to Jesus grumbling, complaining that he was eating with the tax collectors and with the sinners or, or, or thanking God that they were not like, like other sinners. And then there were also those who were thinking about forgiveness of sins, but in that that national sense. Forgiveness of sins as a nation, not so much on some kind of personal level with the Lord. And the truth is, people of Jesus' day needed to come to God as individuals with repentant hearts. Just like us, trusting in Jesus as the Messiah who would one day die on their behalf. As we read in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, that which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Of course, that name being Jesus, the Christ. Well, as we talked about last night in our concert, and we'll again learn tonight, He is the light. He is the light. We see this in verses 78 to 79, because the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And well, you'll probably hear me repeat this, uh, the story this evening, but I can I remember back to the Northridge earthquake. And I know many of you were probably here then when that happened and we were living in Burbank and man it was a jolt to say the least and stuff was crashing down in our house and broken glass everywhere and of course darkness the street lights were out electricity was out just darkness and you didn't want to you didn't even want to walk around because there was all the broken glass and you know all those things go through your mind man people even start looting in the neighborhood and you know and and Julie and I we just kind of sat down against the wall there in our living room and just kind of sat in fear and, and it's dark, and you're just waiting for the sunrise to come up. I, I, remember, I remember being up north, and uh, on occasion I would, I would drive over the, the mountain pass uh, into Redding um, on an early morning if I was doing like an appearance on their Christian radio station. And I remember cresting the, the mountain, and you just off in the distance would see the sunrise, and it just fills you with something, doesn't it? Joy, hope, peace. Just happiness even to see that sunrise. And that is what Jesus is called here. He's identified as the sunrise from on high. 
Malachi 3 has God speaking. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. Of course, we know that is John the Baptist. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord, meaning the Messiah, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. There we could get into this as being even the first and second advents. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Indeed, he has come and indeed he will still come. Friends, as we kind of start to wrap things up here this morning, let, let us let us return to the fact that the Jews, again, were living in some dark days at Jesus' first advent. God had, again, been silent. Rome was oppressing. Herod was cruel. And the people were also living in that spiritual darkness of rampant sin. And yet with the promise of the forerunner and the miraculous nature surrounding his birth, the day was starting to dawn. Light was starting to appear on the horizon. It was about to break forth and with this light came a certain hope. A longing return as the messianic promises were being renewed in the minds and the hearts of the people. And friends, may this be true for us in this Christmas season. For it could easily be said that we too live in difficult, even dark times. Though COVID is not quite what it was last year or the year before, it's still out there, still a concern for some. Our political landscape is such that we live in a fiercely divided country. Crime and violence just seem as rampant as ever. I mean, shootings are happening with regularity. And though we've had some victories, babies are still being slaughtered. And there is much confusion about what it means to be male or female. And the idea of a biblical family, (laughs) it just seems all but extinct. The sexual revolution has taken us places we never thought we'd see. Societal wokeness abounds and the economy is not in the greatest of shape. And to top it off, it would seem that Christianity is out there on the world's chopping block. And as we asked last week, where is the hope? Where is the hope? A couple of years ago, I read this article. It's uh, stung... Stung. It stayed with me. It's one that 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 I, I pulled out and 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 read again, and it's it's just as true today. It's called "How to Do Advent When Nothing Seems Worth Celebrating," by a guy named Chris uh, Papalardo for Christianity Today, where he he asked the question, "What place does a quiet liturgy and and liturgy just means a, a customary observance? What place does a quiet liturgy of Advent have in such a chaotic, turbulent world?" His byline was this: "Our Emmanuel doesn't offer us an escape; he comes to suffer with us." Think about that. God doesn't promise 
an escape from the difficulties of our times. He doesn't promise uh, an escape of the difficulties of the last few years any more than he, than he offered an escape to the first century Jew or Gentile. But what he does promise us, friends, is that as Emmanuel, he will be with us. He will walk with us and he will suffer with us, even for us. The author writes this, quote, Contrary to the hallmark myth, Christmas is not a season of good vibes and tasty treats, though I'm down for both. The context of Christmas is injustice and death. And it has been from the beginning, end quote. And friends, consider too what would almost immediately follow the birth of Jesus, but the slaughter of, of many infant boys... By a cruel and merciless Herod. And in his attempt to kill Jesus. The first Christmas was indeed in the midst of some extremely dark days. The author continues, quote, Christmas commemorates the moment when God entered into our story in flesh and blood. He entered into the middle of the story in the midst of injustice and death. This is good news for us. Especially when we're living a story of injustice and death too. He continues, Advent isn't about an escape from the darkness of the world into a false bastion of tranquility. Advent is a discipline that trains us to experience longing. Just as the Jews did before Jesus' birth. And without this sense of real longing, Christmas offers no sense of real hope. And if we already sense longing for healing and lament over injustice, oh, we are that much closer to the spirit of Advent than we first thought. One day God will end all injustice and death, but Christmas reminds us that God's first step in ending injustice and death was to submit himself to injustice and death. Many of us enter Advent this year crying out, How long, O Lord? And we can be comforted knowing that we do not cry alone. We cry with Jesus himself who enters our suffering. He entered it then, poor in birth, persecuted in life, scorned in death. He enters it with us today as Emmanuel God with us. So even as we weep, we do so with a thrill of hope. Hope does not stop our tears. Hope gives them meaning. Hope does not remove our longing in Christ. Hope redirects it. That which we long for, justice, wholeness, healing, has a name. His name is Jesus, and he is near to the brokenhearted. End quote. So friends, as we celebrate the Christmas season, may we not do so by looking for just some kind of escape from all that grieves us, all that oppresses us, but rather may we celebrate the birth of our Savior and anticipate Christmas with a a hope-filled longing for God with us now and forevermore let's pray 
Father, we thank you so much that you were willing to send your son, that your son was willing to come in the midst of injustice and even death to suffer on our behalf, to die in our place. And yet he went into the ground and three days later rose victorious from the dead. Lord, I pray for any here this morning that, Lord, if they have yet to know Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, that they would repent of their sins and put their faith in Him and what He accomplished on the cross on their behalf, rising from the dead, forgiving their sins and giving them that guarantee of eternal life, that they would, even right now while we are praying, Lord, repent and believe. Father, help us to go through this season, this Christmas season, with a longing, with a desire for God with us. May we praise and exalt you for the fact that Christ lives in us through his spirit, your spirit, God. And that one day we will then live eternally with you. We thank you, praise you, give you all the glory. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.